everybody here this morning. We are going to be in the book of Galatians this morning. If you brought your Bible with you, I would encourage you to go ahead and open up there. It's going to be Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to the end of the chapter. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get there. Uh, and you can probably also find a pew Bible somewhere in your vicinity as well if you'd like to look on there. So this morning, later this morning, at the uh, very beginning of the first service, in case anybody here is wanting to know, or second service, excuse me, the very beginning of the second service, in case anybody here is wanting to know, uh, we will be uh, baptizing Corbin. He came down at the end of the service, uh, second service last week. Uh, he uh, prayed to accept Christ a couple of weeks ago, uh, one evening before bed, uh, and uh, really excited about the opportunity um, that we have today as a church, that I have today as a father, uh, to be a, a part of that. So again, that'll be at the very beginning of the, of the second service. If anybody wants to peek in and watch that and then sneak out after it's over, nobody will hold it against you. Um, I was baptized when I was 15 years old. Uh, I had gotten saved at a church camp uh, the week before, or a couple of weeks before. I think we had to miss a Sunday for a family vacation. Uh, so a couple of Sundays before that, I was at a, a church camp in Luters, Texas, uh, I've shared this with you before. Um, I had a feeling, uh, knowing that, that Christ was calling me, uh, an experience that has never been replicated uh, in my own life, that, that, that first experience of the filling of the Holy Spirit, of the presence of Christ. I, I knew that I needed to go back and, and tell everyone about it. Um, that I was excited about what God had in store for me. I knew almost immediately uh, that God was calling me into some sort of ministry at some point in the future, and it, it all kind of came as a package deal. It doesn't always happen that way. Normally it doesn't, but uh, I, had, I was fortunate enough, blessed enough to, for it to come all together like that. And it's a situation that I can look back to, a moment in time that I can look back to and know that it literally changed my life, uh, that everything else since then has been different because of what God did in that moment. Uh, maybe your salvation story is similar to that one. Um, maybe you were baptized at a young age and you grew up. I remember hearing, I can't remember, I think the guy's name was Finley Edge. I could be wrong in quoting it this way, though. Uh, but him saying that a, a child in a Christian home should grow up knowing him or herself to be nothing other than a Christian. And so maybe you grew up uh, in one of those homes where there wasn't a, a big change uh, in your lifestyle necessarily, and you always kind of behaved as and believed as a Christian. You can't remember a time when you didn't believe in Christ, but I'm sure you had that moment uh, of dedication, that moment of, of Christ saving you. It's a different story for everyone. Um, your testimony that we would call it, whether it's a testimony like that or a testimony of coming to faith in adulthood after a rebellious life or uh, in adulthood after a normal life uh, or an uh, you know, older adulthood after a long life, whatever it is, uh, your testimony is, is yours and God's. It's a testimony to what God has done in your life and to how God has literally changed you, changed your identity. Baptism is a symbolic mark of that change. It's not the only change. There are meeting Christ and salvation. That's the most important change. But there's other moments in our lives that we can look back on and know that every moment since then is different because of that moment. What moments in your life have changed the way you define yourself? If you have a spouse, I'm sure that day when you said I do to one another changed the way that you look at yourself. 
change the way that you define yourself. You are now someone's husband or someone's wife. Um, maybe even changed your name. It changed everything about you. And every day since then has been different because of that day. You have children. You could probably remember the first time when you had your first child and you first held that child in your hands, uh, when you first took that child home, uh, all the firsts that come with a first child. And now every day since then has been different because of that day. There are many days like that, many moments like that in our lives. Maybe it's a job or a career path. Maybe it's graduating high school or college. Maybe being the first in your family to do something like that. Maybe it's some other choice uh, that isn't even one of the big normal ones but was big and specific for you that you made in your life where you can look back and you can say that every day since then is different because of that day. Your identity was changed. Baptism, we always say, is an outward sign of an inward change, a change in our identity, a change in who we are. Baptism is something that we get to do. It is a grace given to us, a gift that God gives us that we do not deserve. This is what baptism is. It's not something that that we should look at as a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for, some sort of burden that we should carry or, or, or some sort of thing that we should feel like we just have to go through the motions or we have to do this in order to pass the test at the end of life. Baptism is not something that we should look at as that way, but it's something that is a gift, an opportunity to participate in something that Jesus himself participated in, an opportunity to participate in this symbolic retelling of the story of what Christ has done in your life. Baptism is a metaphorical means of communicating the most important thing about us. It is a metaphorical means, which means it itself doesn't save us. But metaphorically, it tells the story. It serves as an example, as a retelling of the most important thing about us. And we see Paul speak briefly about baptism in a longer section over law and faith and the new covenant in Galatians chapter 3, 15 through 29. Uh, but I believe it speaks a powerful word to baptism this morning. And so uh, you're just going to have to forgive me. Today's a big day in my life, so I'm just going to preach about baptism, if that's okay uh, with everybody. Uh, we'll get back on a series here in a couple of weeks after Mission Sunday. We're going to talk about prayer for a while, but we're going to focus on baptism this morning. So before we open the scripture, let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for your amazing grace. God, we thank you for the cross on which you showed that grace most plainly to us. And God, we thank you for the gift of salvation, for the gift of forgiveness. God, and the gift that we have, even in the ordinance of baptism, to participate in what you've done tell that story. God, we thank you for changing us from the inside out. God, we thank you for you being the most important part of our story. Lord, I pray now that as we turn to your word, God, that you would remove distraction from us. God, that you would use me as your messenger, and that, God, that you would communicate exactly what you will to everyone here this morning in such a way that it brings transformation. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Once again, Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. Paul, speaking about the law and the promise, speaking about the law and faith, the old and the new covenant, 
says these words. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come up, should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to promise. So Paul spends a lot of Galatians doing this very thing, explaining the preeminence of the new covenant in Christ, its superiority to the old covenant in the law. He does so, he tries to walk this line, and you can see him walking it in the way he kind of has a conversation back and forth with himself, not wanting to throw the law away, not wanting to say that the law was useless or even that it was a bad thing, but to show that it had a purpose. And its purpose was partial. The ultimate fulfillment comes in the ultimate promise, which is the person of Jesus Christ. And so he shows us the limitations and the purpose of the law. The limitations of the law was that the promise, the promise, the original promise that God would make Abraham and his people a blessing that he would make his descendants as numerous as the sand on the shore, uh, that those who blessed him would be blessed, those who cursed him would be cursed, and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. That original promise, going back to Genesis 12, predates the giving of the law to Moses by 430 years. So Paul automatically says, hey, here's a problem. If we are children of Abraham, which the Jews believe themselves to be, if we are children of Abraham and children heirs of Abraham's promise, then why did the promise happen 430 years before the law if the law is the most important thing? So he shows the timeline of the law, that itself being a limitation. And then he draws a point that hadn't yet been drawn before. If you read through um, this idea of offspring, he says that the promise had a singular offspring. In, in, in Genesis 12, verse 7, that's one example. There's a few others in Genesis. But Genesis 12, verse 7, when God is telling Abraham about the promise, he talks about his offspring, the one who would come after him. 
Paul makes the point that he didn't say offsprings. Now, in English, it would be weird to say offsprings. In English, we can say offspring, and it can mean either plural or singular. But in Hebrew, plural or singular stood out a little more. And so what Paul was saying is that it's not a plural word. It is a singular word. It is pointing to one person, not a group of people, but to one person. And this offspring, the one who would ultimately fulfill the promise that God was giving to Abraham in Genesis 12, would come through Jesus Christ himself. And so the law is limited in that sense, and that it's not for everyone as the Jews thought that it was, but it was pointing forward, dependent upon someone else, the offspring that was to come. And then he goes on to say that the law was given by an intermediary. He talks about angels. Um, that can be a little confusing. If you remember the giving of the law, it seems like it was Moses listening to God. Uh, in Deuteronomy 33, Moses seems to talk about, towards the end of his life, about angels being part of that process. But even if you take that out of it, Moses himself was an intermediary in receiving the law and then giving the law to the people. And there not being a need for that any longer. So the law obviously has its limitations. Now, for us, we can nod and say, yes, this is correct. We know this. We're not big fans of the law in American culture today. As a matter of fact, uh, we're, we're more likely to be lawless than we are legalistic in a lot of ways in our culture today. Um, that's always a tension. Don't hear me say that legalism doesn't exist. It absolutely does. Uh, but I have a feeling that we're bending more the other direction right now. Uh, it would be called, in case you're, you're wanting to do any like Bible trivia or study one day, it's called antinomianism, which would mean a complete rejection of law, a complete rejection of right and wrong. That's kind of where we seem to be bending today's world. So um, you might say in our culture today, sure, throw out the law, like get rid of it completely. Yes, Paul, we, we hate the law. We hate being told what to do. Let us live in freedom. But that's not what Paul is doing. And the Jews would have heard it a lot different. They would have been offended by anything negative about the law. And so it is revolutionary. It is um, probably anger-inducing the words that Paul is using when he shares these truths with Jewish-minded people who held the law above all. He says, again, not that it's useless, but that it is partial. It does have a purpose. Paul talks about the law as a guardian for the promise until its ultimate fulfillment. A placeholder, if you will, looking forward to something else. Because sin entered the world and so the law came in to convict us of sin. The way that Paul puts that is that the scripture imprisoned us to sin. Imprisoned us in sin. Now you might be thinking, well, why did you give it then? Like, why did we have to get the scripture. And by the scripture, he probably is talking more specifically about the law itself. Like, if it just imprisoned us in sin, what's the point of it? Shouldn't we have just not been told anything and been completely oblivious and been fine and not in prison? But we're missing the point if, if we do that. The, the reality is that Paul says elsewhere in scripture that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that all of us are in need of a savior. And what the law does, essentially, and Paul says this in other places throughout his letters, is that it helps us realize our lostness. That it helps us see the consequences of sin in this plane, in this realm, before we bear the eternal consequences in the next realm. And so the law very clearly paints this picture that we are unable to live up to God's standard because the law is God's standard. And if we cannot live up to God's standard, then there is something in us that is missing, 
something in us that is broken. And if you need a reminder on whether or not we can live up to God's standard, go back online and check out the sermons from Judges. It's just a good reminder that we cannot, we are a fallen people, a fallen race. We cannot live up to God's standards. The law shows us that clearly. A truth that if we just lived in freedom, we might not have seen as well. To imprison the world in sin then is helping us realize our need for faith, our need for a savior. So before Christ then, we were prisoners, separated from God and from one another. This is what it means to be lost. Being lost essentially means without a God or a people. Think about that for a minute. That's what it means to be lost, to be without hope, to be without a savior. And then when we look at what Paul says about the church being one, us being one in Christ, it also means to be without a people, to be wandering in the wilderness, if you will, alone. We let that word rip off our tongue very easily in church culture today when we pray for the lost or we think about the lost or how do you you care about the lost? What about the lost? The next time you say that word or you hear that word, let it sink in what that really means. It's becoming less and less common for us to get lost in our culture today because we have these things in our pockets that tell us exactly where we are so we can know where we are and so the government can know where we are, right? Uh, So everyone can know where we are. We're not going to get lost because we have a map available to us and GPS telling us where we are anywhere that we go. Lost, being lost in that sense is a thing of the past for the most part. But if you can remember the days before this, and I... I barely can. I'm going to be honest with you. I am the very beginning of the millennial generation. And as I look back to those moments when I can remember actually being physically lost, it is a frightening experience. Can anyone ever remember that, like actually being lost? Okay, a few of you can. That's good. And when you get in that predicament, you don't know where to go especially if it's at night. You don't even have the sun to tell you where you're going. And you're not like an ancient seafarer where you can look at the stars and you know which direction is which. You don't even know which way is which. Not only do you not know how to get where you're going, you don't even know where you're going is. You don't even know if you're going in the wrong direction or any direction or in a circle. That's what being lost is. It's not only not being able to get to the destination, but not even knowing where you currently are. That's the definition of what it means spiritually to be lost, to be without direction, to be without hope, to not even know what step to take because that step could take you further away. You have no idea which direction you're supposed to go, what you're supposed to do, who you're supposed to depend on. This is what it means to be lost, imprisoned to sin without a God, without a people. The law didn't make us guilty and lost. It is just a very efficient tool in making us aware of our guilt and lostness. But we have been baptized into, and we can put on Christ. I love the the way that Paul talks about that. Again, baptizing is, is a word we use very quickly in our culture, and We usually talk about this baptistry and actually the act of baptizing someone. But in the Greek, that was just a normal word. 
And it meant to submerge, submerse, to completely engulf yourself into something. So being baptized into Christ is being submersed into Christ, being completely engulfed by Christ. And he uses another metaphor when he says to put on. Those of you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As if you're putting on a new garment. As if you're completely changing the way that you look. You're completely changing everything about you from the inside out. You're baptized into Christ and you're putting on Christ. Those who have been baptized into Christ are children of promise. Paul talks about that word a lot, promise, the promise of Abraham. Those who have been baptized into Christ are children of that promise. Let us not lose the mystery and the beauty of our faith that reaches all the way back into Genesis 12 when God made that original promise. You, yourself, today, those of you who are baptized into Christ, who are wearing Christ, who have put him on long before you entered this room this morning, some of you decades ago, let it not be lost on you, the beauty of it all, that it didn't start with you putting on Christ. It didn't even start with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It started way, 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 way. Way back when God first encountered a people and said, I choose you to bless. That blessing extends through Abraham, through the, the muddy story of the Old Testament, all the way through Jesus, through the fallen and sometimes muddy story of church history, all the way to you Today, you are a child of that promise, that original promise where God promised to bless his chosen people. You are a child of promise because you have been baptized into Christ. You have put on Christ. And those who have been baptized into Christ, Paul says, are one. In a very famous part of Galatians, he says, there is no Jew nor Greek, there is nor slave nor free man, there isn't even woman or man, there is one. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Don't you long for a day when that is reality? Bill, your favorite hymn, you sang a moment ago. One of my favorite lines in all of hymnody is from that, that our sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. But even today, I was thinking about that next and last stanza of that song. That that day comes when my faith shall be made sight. Where that which we hope for becomes reality. Baptism is a foreshadowing of that reality of us dying to the old ways and being resurrected to the new and experiencing the newness that Christ will have for us that will include this truth that Paul is talking about, of us being one in Christ Jesus. I've said it before, I'll say it again. We are experts in our world today, especially or even in the church, at dividing ourselves well. We do it with precision in our culture, don't we? Dividing ourselves over the smallest of things. And in the church, we do it over the smallest of things where we can say something that seems like a joke, like churches that have divided over the color of the carpet. But in reality, in some cases, that hasn't been a joke, right? Some of you have heard stories where that was true. Something that small caused a division. We are experts 
with scalpel precision at dividing ourselves. I long for the day when we will be one in Christ. Don't leave that part out. Unity for unity's sake is nothing but to be unified in Christ, in that purpose, in that person. Those who have been baptized into Christ are children of promise. Those who have been baptized into Christ are one. They belong to a family. So the symbol of baptism. It's very simple in a way. You're buried with Christ in death. Buried with Christ in baptism. It depends on who you're listening to. Sometimes I say different words there. But I like both of them. Buried with Christ in death. That the going down into the water symbolizes our identifying with Christ and his death. But it also symbolizes the death of the old man or old woman that we leave behind. And symbolically, we leave that behind in the water. There's a a kind of funny song by Randy Travis called Pray for the Fish. Has anybody ever heard this song? No? Okay, it's one of his newer ones. It's not way back in the day, Randy Travis. It's, uh, it's a little bit more recent, Randy Travis. But in the song, he talks about this guy who lived a really sinful life, uh, like a party animal, and he went down to the creek to get baptized. Uh, and, and Randy Travis said, you know, all the sins were washed away, so pray for the fish, right? Pray for the ones that are left behind in the water with him. It's a, making light of a funny thing, but a real thing, symbolically real thing. A symbol can be more real sometimes than anything else. And baptism is evidence of that. And that it washes, it is a symbol of God washing away our sin. Just as Christ nailed our sin to the cross where we bear it no more. We remember that in baptism. And so as I dip my seven-year-old son in the water later this morning... All that he has ever done wrong, which I know him well. He's done a lot wrong already in seven years. All that he has done wrong, here's a glorious truth. All that he will ever do wrong. All of his sin. It's already happened when he asked Jesus into his heart, but the symbol tells us that all of it is left behind and washed away. This is what it means to be baptized into Christ. You are not identified by sin any longer. That's what Paul was telling him. Before Christ, we were prisoners of sin through the law, through the law showing us our imprisonment. But because of what Christ has done, that has changed. We leave self behind in the water where we no longer live for self, but instead we are raised to something new, something bigger than ourselves, and we even leave division behind division from God and division from others, the consequences of the original sin. And what we gain upon what I'm going to call re-entry, even though you're coming out of the water, you're re-entering into a new world, into a new reality. What we gain upon re-entry when we're risen again to walk in the newness of life, we gain salvation not on our own action, certainly not by baptism, but it is a symbol of what God has given us through Jesus Christ. Just as Christ himself was raised out of the grave, we symbolically are raised out of the water, raised out of sin, raised out of self, raised out of death into a new saved life. 
and we are raised to a purpose, a calling. We are ones who are sent to go and baptize others in the name of Jesus. And we are raised into a family. Ah, this is a beautiful reality. Again, I believe this happens before baptism, but it's a symbol of it. I'm going to keep saying that because that's very important. But this is what I believe symbolically, if you stick around for the 11 o'clock service, that you will see, you will see my son enter into the water of baptism and raise my brother and yours as well in Christ. We're going to be part of the same family. We already are, but we're going to get, you're going to get to adopt a new little brother at 11 o'clock this morning. Uh, my son is going to become my brother in Christ. Again, it's already happened, but symbolically we get to celebrate that today. This is the beauty of the gift that we have of baptism. It's not some burden. It is a joy to share in what Christ has done in our lives. Baptism is a metaphorical means of communicating the most important thing about us. It tells us whose we are, whose you are. You no longer belong to yourself. You no longer belong to sin. You do not belong to the forces of evil. Instead, you belong solely to the person of Christ, the one, the only one who has the ability to raise you out of the death that the water symbolizes. And it also tells us who we are, whose we are and who we are. You are a child of promise. You are, as Paul talks about, an heir of the inheritance of faith. Inheriting the same thing that Abraham was promised. Inheriting eternity with Christ in heaven. You are sent to be on mission and you are part of one body. One body, the church of Jesus Christ. We are baptized not only into Christ but into his body, his church for a purpose, for a family, for those times when life is hard and we need others to lean on. You are baptized into the body of Jesus Christ. I don't preach on this enough because it's something we do every so often that we just assume that we all understand and that we all appreciate. But I myself take for granted what those molecules of hydrogen and oxygen put together in water mean. They are something more important than a physical act. It is a spiritual symbol, a metaphorical means of communicating to us the most important thing about us, that we belong to Christ, that we belong to each other that we are baptized to walk in the newness of life, leaving behind the old man and the old woman, the old identity, and walking solely in the new identity that we have in Christ. So yeah, Paul can stand firmly on his assertion to the Galatians. By the way, the Galatians, I should have told you this at the beginning. The big problem with the Galatians is that they were trying to go backwards the Judaizers were trying to convince them to go back to the law. And so Paul can stand firmly on his assertion that Jesus is better. That he fulfills everything. That what you were leaning on in the law is only partial fulfillment of the ultimate, ultimate fulfillment of Jesus Christ. And if you have been baptized into Christ, you have also put him on. He is changing you from the inside out. You are immersed in him. He is all around. He changes the way you look. He changes the way you act. He changes you from the inside out. That moment of baptism, that moment that my son is going to get to celebrate here in just a few minutes is one of those moments where every day I firmly believe, because I'm not going to let him go undiscipled from this point forward, where every day for the rest of his life will be different because of the decision that he's going to tell you about symbolically through baptism this morning. I'm a happy dad, and I'm also a happy person 
because I myself can look back on that moment and think about where I would be without Christ. This moment wouldn't happen without that moment. I wouldn't be in the situation to lead a child, let alone my own to the Lord, if he had not found me and saved me and baptized me. I look back to that moment and to see the hand of God working through all of those moments leading to this one and far beyond. I'm grateful for the new covenant. I'm grateful for faith. I'm grateful for the saving waters of baptism. Not saving on their own. And I got to keep saying that just to make sure you understand we're on the same page. Symbolically, saving waters of baptism because of Jesus Christ. If there's anyone here this morning who has never experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ, I would love to talk with you about that during our time of invitation to tell you what that could mean for you. This could be a moment that changes your life. For those of you who do have faith and follow Jesus, who can look back to that moment in a life full of moments where God has orchestrated your life in the way that it has been orchestrated, give thanks. Give thanks where you are as we sing. That's a simple homework for you, a simple call to worship and give thanks to the one in whom you are baptized. I'm going to pray. Bill and Leonard are going to lead us in the song of invitation. And as they do that, just move in whatever way God is calling. I'll be down here to pray about anything at all. But let's stand together, pray, and then you move however God is telling you to.